morning. How are you guys doing? Do you feel as good as you look? Then we're going to have a great service because you guys look really good. Hey, um, if you haven't already, find your message notes, take those out. And if you have a Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 34 through 39. And by the way, if you're here today and you don't have your own copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. So on your way out today, if you'll just go by the information table, you'll see stacks of Bibles at both ends. Just pick one up, take it with you. Uh, those are, are free to you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay because we have the scripture passages printed in your, uh, your message notes, and they'll also be coming up on the screens behind me. So uh, I've been excited about today's message for a while, and, uh, and just this whole series that we're in right now called We Believe. Uh, Rocky River Church turned 20 years old this week. Praise the Lord. He gets all the credit, that's for sure. And uh, the Lord and lots of former staff members and volunteers and key leaders throughout the years, um, that they get the credit. Uh, you know, Rick Warren, uh, do you know Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church out in Mission Viejo, California? He wrote uh, a book called The Purpose Driven Church. Later, you, you may know him because he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, but I was introduced to him way back uh, when I was first starting into the ministry. He wrote The Purpose Driven Church, and uh, it was a, a new paradigm for how to do church. Instead of being a, a program-driven church, uh, he talked about being a purpose-driven church. And I've laughed through the years, and sometimes I've cried through this as well. Uh, I could write The Mistake-Driven Church. Uh, when I, whenever I have young church planters come to me and they want to talk about starting a church and how do you do that and you guys are 20 years old and, you know, how, you know what do I need to do? Uh, I usually start off by telling them the things not to do because through the years I've learned a lot of things that you shouldn't do when you start a church. But um, despite me... Uh, here we are 20 years later. Praise the Lord for it. So I was thinking uh, back earlier in the year, uh, you know, probably the best way to mark our 20th anniversary, our 20th birthday as a church, is to talk about what we believe and to do sort of like a, a, a vision series, core values type series where I talk about the DNA of our church, what we believe, what we're about what we're up to as a church, those kinds of things. And uh, so last week, we kicked off this series called We Believe. We talked about believing in a vision last week, a vision that, you know, the Lord has given to the church, not just Rocky River Church, but the, the big C church, the church that meets everywhere. And, and then we're internalizing that to say, okay, this is how we understand it. This is what it looks like to be the church. This, this is what we believe uh, God wants to do uh, with us here at Rocky River Church. And um, I'm just going to warn you, especially those of you who have been here a long time, Lee uh, and, and Brian. Brian's been here a long time too, but Lee officially was here. Hang on, Jesse. <laughs> Lee, Lee, Lee was officially here. L Lee Walter showed up uh, the Sunday before our grand opening. 
So there was just like a core group of us meeting at the Rocky River Elementary School in their cafetorium, which if you don't know what a cafetorium is, that's half cafeteria, half auditorium. And uh, she showed up. Corey was uh, just a little guy then, three years old. And, uh, and Jesse was there, uh, but she was inside of Lee's belly. She hadn't been born. But we counted her that morning. She wasn't born yet, but we counted her. In fact, in those days, if you walked in Rocky River Church and you walked out, maybe to the car to get something, and you came back in, we counted you again. Because uh, in those days, that's how we got up to about having 25 or 30 people at church on a Sunday morning. Uh, but, but anyway, I, where I was going with that is I just want to warn you, I feel a little nostalgic this morning. And uh, I'm going to probably uh, share some things that if you're, if you're newer to Rocky River, you'll be getting these for the first time. But if you've been here for, let's say, five years or more, uh, you've heard some of the things that I'm going to share, some of the stories that I want to give you. But I'm a storyteller, and I think stories are important. So today we're going to talk about worship. And I'll bet you that when you hear the word worship, what comes to mind is not really what worship is. Because if, if you think that worship is just about singing and what we do with the band before the message, uh, that's, that's not really it. And in fact, if you look at your notes down at the bottom of the first page, there's the question there, what does worship mean? Well, the word actually, the word worship actually comes from an old English word, worth script, which means to declare worth or value. So here's what that means to us. When you are worshiping God, you're declaring his value. Or you can look at it like this. You're declaring God's worth. Now, I'm going to get to this in a little more detail in just a few minutes. But, but I want you to hear what I'm saying up front because I'm going to tell you what worship really is uh, after we read our scripture passage for this morning. But I want you to hear me say that singing... And praising the Lord is part of worship, but only a part. Instead, we worship God with our whole lives. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Let me give you the setup for our scripture passage this morning. One day, Jesus was with his disciples, and he's been doing some teaching. Now, when you're in Matthew's gospel, you know... If Jesus lived on this earth roughly 33 years or so, when you get to uh, Matthew chapter 22, you've got to be thinking he's getting sort of toward the end of his life. He's getting toward or closer to his death on the cross. And, and that's true. That's happening. But Jesus, for most of his ministry, and I would imagine most of his adult life, he has had this ongoing conflict with the religious leaders of his day. The Pharisees. The Pharisees were professional religious people. They were lawyers, but not in the sense that we think lawyers. It wasn't just about, you know, criminal law and the justice system, that sort of thing. It was about religious law. Well, 
these religious leaders were always looking for a way to discredit Jesus. And part of that was because they were jealous of him. They were jealous because everywhere Jesus went, he was drawing these huge crowds. In fact, uh, I've through the years, I've always pointed people back to the first chapter of Mark's gospel. When Mark describes people coming out to hear Jesus, he, he says it in the Greek Sort of like this, this is a rough translation. This is not the King James translation, this is King Jimmy translation. So it's loosely translated. But he says it in a way where it goes something like, it was easier to count the people who were not coming to hear Jesus speak than to count the crowds who were coming to hear him speak. Everybody's coming. Even the religious leaders. In fact, usually they were sitting down front, again, wanting to hear the message and always looking for a way to discredit him. Again, it was mostly out of jealousy. Well, one day this lawyer comes up to Jesus, and he's looking to trick him. You need to know that. And so he, he asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Instead of me just paraphrasing this, just look at the words here. In Matthew 22, starting in 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. The Sadducees, th think of this like a two-party system, Republicans and Democrats. You have Sadducees and the Pharisees. And so Jesus had put the Sadducees, who were a little more liberal in their thinking, Jesus had put them in their place. He had quieted them down. So the Pharisees, who were, you know, um, what's a good way? There's not a, a, there's not a way to say this without it being politically loaded. I, I don't mean this in a political sense. I mean this in a religious sense. They were very conservative. And they thought they were right about everything. They're the experts. They're the ones who copy the law. They memorize the law. They are the experts. So they thought, well, those Sadducees, we're smarter than them. Guarantee you we can get to Jesus. So these guys have gathered up and they put together their plan. One of them, an expert of the law, verse 35, Tested him with this question. See, he tested him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I'm going to tell you that this smart aleck, punk lawyer, he knew the answer to the question. He's a lawyer, and lawyers will tell you, you never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. He already knew the answer. The answer is the Shema that goes all the way back to the law in Deuteronomy 6, verses, uh, verse 4, roughly around verses 3 to 5. And it says, Hear, O Israel, this is what the Shema is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So this lawyer, because again, he's an expert, he would have started every day by saying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, I'm sorry, all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the answer. So I'm not, I'm not sure what he's expecting Jesus to say, but Jesus gave him that answer. 
Jesus replied, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I think that if you're looking at this as a conversation or if you're listening to this happen live, I think that that's where the religious expert thought that the conversation had just broken down. I think he was expecting Jesus to say something else is the greatest commandment. But before he could turn and walk away, like, um, okay, well, I already do that, and everybody knows that answer. I knew that answer before I even asked the question. Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, and the and is what made the lawyer turn back toward Jesus to listen. Because he's walking away. Jesus said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Next week, we're going to talk about how to love your neighbor. Today, we're going to talk about how to love God. And that's what worship is. Worship is loving God. Not just being in church on Sundays. And believe me, I'm not trying to give you uh, an excuse to not come to church on Sundays. This is certainly a part of worship, but what we do here on Sunday mornings and the singing and praising the Lord, that's only part of worship. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind is a way of saying you love God with every part of you. You love him in how you spend your money. You, you love him in how you spend your time. You show his worth and value wherever you are in normal, plain, everyday conversation, in your commute to work, and how you deal with people at work, how you do your job, how you talk to your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids or your boyfriend and girlfriend. You love God with everything you have, and it comes out the fact that you love God. And how you do everything you do. And that ain't easy. It's especially not easy when you're watching your Tar Heels. And over time with Virginia Tech. Anybody DVR the game and you don't know the score? I won't tell you then. But it's hard to show God's worth and value when you're struggling through a ball game. A friend of mine, you've heard me talk about this before. He, he reminds me on Sundays when he knows I'm going to the Panthers game, which is pretty much whenever the Panthers are playing at home, uh, he always says, make sure you take Jesus with you to the game. And I'm not really sure why Johnny started telling me that in the beginning. I'm not sure if he got a bad report on me. I'm not sure if he saw me on the Jumbotron or whatever, uh, you know, not honoring the Lord at the game. But it certainly is a reminder every time I go there, um, that Jesus is with me. But you 
you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, when you're at the ball game, when you're at the race, whatever you're doing, see, worship is not just an act. It's not just an event. It's not just about a place, and it's certainly not just about music. Worship is not just a part of my life, and there's a fill-in on the top of the back page of your notes. It says, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is not what you do. It's who you are. The question is, how, how do you do that? And where do you start? How do you start loving God like it's a lifestyle? How do you start loving God where, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever, wherever you're doing it? How do you do that? Well, this morning, I'm going to give you what I think are five ways to start doing this. Now, now listen to me. Listen. The religious leaders, the ones who are trying to trick Jesus, they had come up with 613 ways to love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. 613. Um, part of me thinks that maybe this young lawyer is trying to whittle this down to one thing. But they had built this system that no one could keep up with. So, so listen, th there are more than five ways to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, and all your mind. But today we're going to talk about five. And, and these get you started. And if you'll start here, this will lead you to the relationship with God that you're looking for. And I'll just tell you frankly, I wish someone would have told me these when I was in my teens. I wish someone would have told me this in my 20s or my 30s. I just didn't understand it this way. But here are five ways to get started in making worship a lifestyle. The first thing I do is I exchange my plans for God's plan. I exchange my plans for God's plans. A few weeks ago, uh, we were in Israel, a group of about 20 of us, we were in uh, in the Holy Land. And by the way, let me, just, let me just tell you this. I've been invited to go back to the Holy Land this May. Uh, one, one of my best buddies has taken uh, a group from his church and some, uh, some other pastors to Israel. It's about a 10-day trip, uh, $4,300, $4,400, something like that. I don't have all the details. I'll have them this week, and I'll get you more uh, information on that if you're interested in going because I can take anywhere from six to ten people. And so uh, just, just want to put that out there. But w whenever I go to Israel and I'm taking a group, I, I make sure that we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You ever heard of the Garden of Gethsemane? Just a show of hands. The, the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus and his disciples go to after they celebrate the Passover feast. We would call it now the Lord's Supper. 
And Jesus and the disciples go out and they're praying. And Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus is going to be arrested. He knows that the Romans are going to crucify him. And one of the things that makes going to the Garden of Gethsemane so powerful is that you, you know there is where Jesus struggled with his humanity and his divinity. I mean, he's God, but you can see him in his humanity. He knows what's coming. And if there's a way around that, he asks God for it. Listen, listen to how this goes in Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, so Jesus left his disciples in one spot. He went a little further. He, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In other words, Lord, if there's another way around this horrible crucifixion, let's do that. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew there was a plan for his life. He knew that the plan included his death on the cross and, and his humanity leaks out. And he says, if there's another way, let, let's do that. But he says, I, I, I'm yielding my life in obedience to the plan. If this is what we're gonna do, this is what we're gonna do. I'm all in. L listen, you can't love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with everything you have, until you exchange your plans for his plans. And can I just tell you, that's not easy. Say that with me. It's not easy. Say it again, but like you really mean it. It's not easy. I'm telling you, it's not easy. L listen, I didn't grow up dreaming of being a preacher. I grew up dreaming of uh, being a catcher for the Dodgers, replacing Gene Simmons as the bass player and singer in Kiss. Um, this is not what I envisioned for my life. Um, but it was God's plan for my life. And I probably knew that I was called to ministry when I was in my early teens. But it took me a long time to say yes. It took me a long time to say, God, this is what I've been planning for my life. Doesn't this look great? I mean, I can remember trying to paint the picture for God. Look at this. Okay, so I, I know it wouldn't be honoring to you for me to play for Kiss uh, what do you think about this Dodgers thing? Um, and, and then, you know, one, once I realized, you know, um, I'm not going to spit fire and wear dragon boots and I can't hit a curveball, so playing in the major leagues is not going to work, I jumped into our family business full on. And so I, I can remember in my late teens, uh, Saying to, to God, look at how much money I'm making. Think about what I could do for a church with these resources. Please let me do this. I don't want to be in the ministry. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a preacher. Wouldn't this be so much better? 
and I just could not get away from it. I could not get away from the calling. And, and I ran. Sometimes I want to run now. But I, I ran for as long as I could. And around every turn I took, the Lord was there waiting for me. You know what's interesting is, is I see people running today. And I recognize the run I recognize that sometimes when people leave here, they go somewhere else. What they do is they think, okay, if I go to church somewhere else, maybe this whole heat. And they don't think about it like this necessarily. They're not saying it like this, but this is what's going on. The heat is on for them to do something they don't want to do. And they think if they go to church somewhere else, then the heat will turn down. But it doesn't. I learned that. I remember saying to Karen when we were dating and, you know, we were pretty serious uh, about being together for a long time, I just said, hey, you know, this is the church I grew up in. Why don't we go and find a church that we can, you know, just start our lives in together and we'll grow with that church and just go find somewhere else. And we did look around for a little while. And everywhere we went, the Lord was there talking to me about the ministry until I finally had to yield my plans to his plans. Um... the best decision I ever made. The, the moment, I, I remember the moment I verbalized it to my mother. So I don't know about you, any mama's boys here? <laughs> Two of us? Three of us? Some of you guys are just liars. If I want to know if you're a mama's boy, I wouldn't ask you anyway. I'd ask your wife. She knows. <laughs> um, I had to pass everything through my mom. I needed her feedback. And I remember voicing it and just the voicing it of this is what God is wanting me to do. It, it, it was like pressure I can't even explain being lifted off of me. What, what's God calling you to do? And I, I'm not saying this so much for the person here that um, you're not a believer, you're not sure what to do with Jesus. I, I'm talking right now to maybe a handful of you. You know what God wants for your life. You know what he wants you to do. And you've just been saying no to it. I'm challenging you, you today to get off of your blessed assurance and go do it. Go do it. That's how you begin to love the Lord your God with everything you have. That's where a lifestyle of worship begins when you say, Lord, these are my plans. I sacrifice them to you. I'm going to start living your plan. Number two, I live according to God's truth, not the opinions of others. I live according to God's truth, not the opinions of others. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is John chapter 4. 
It's the story of the Samaritan woman. Um, it's a great story of life change. When I was in, when I was in, uh, in college, we had these uh, ministerial education teams that would travel around and uh, we would preach at different churches throughout like uh, an association of churches. I went to a Baptist school. I grew up Baptist. And uh, so let's say like the in Cabarrus County, all the Baptist churches that are participating, Baptist churches, they're part of what's called the Cabarrus Baptist Association. So let, let's say on any given weekend, there could be 50 churches that say, hey, we're going to open our pulpits on this certain day for young preachers to come in and preach. And, you know, they get a practice. It gives our preacher a Sunday off or just whatever the case may be. So I, I had started preaching at um, like the anchor churches that we were going to be preaching in. In that week. And during this period of time in my life, God gave me a message from John chapter, chapter 4 that he used not only to change my life, but to change the way I look at people. To see people for who they are. And, and not just for what they are, but who they are. Who they are to God. And, and really to see the value of people. If you know the story, Jesus has this divine encounter with this Samaritan woman. Samaritans to the Jews were half-breeds of people. They were half-Jew, but they were half-everything else, half-Gentile. And they didn't get along. They didn't get along religiously. They didn't get along uh, politically. There were just lots of problems between them. This Samaritan woman was dirt in her community. She was a woman with a horrible reputation. Uh, I could just go on and on about that, but I won't. But this woman was just at the bottom of the social totem pole. Jesus meets with her, and during that encounter, her life has changed. She realizes her own value. And during this conversation, Jesus brings up this woman's love life. He asks her about her husband. He says something like this, woman, go and get your husband. Now, for those of you who are Southerners like I am, woman there is translated better as ma'am or lady. So Jesus is not saying, woman, go get your husband. You know, like he's there with a wife beater t-shirt on. He, he says, he says ma'am, go, go and get your husband. And she answers him back, sir, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, yeah, I, I know you don't have a husband. You've been married five times, and now you're living with a man who doesn't love you enough to give you his last name. And that prompted her to ask Jesus her spiritual question. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. In other words, there's something different about you. You're not like the other religious leaders that I'm, I'm used to encountering uh, you're kind, you talk differently, there's just, your, your hair's a little longer or something, I don't know. You, but, but anyway, anyway, I have a question, and you might be the right guy to answer it. My ancestors say that the place we worship is up on the holy mountain, but you, the Jews, say that the place to worship God is in the holy city of Jerusalem. What's the truth? 
maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering what the truth is. You know, I'm here at a inter, in an interdenominational church. What does that mean? What is that all about? But the Baptists say they have the truth. The Lutherans say they have the truth. The Catholics have the truth. What's the truth? That's the kind of question this lady's asking. And Jesus said, ma'am, woman, the time is coming. In fact, it's here now. When you won't have to go into a mountain to worship God, nor in the holy city of Jerusalem. Instead, you can worship God in spirit and in truth. In fact, God seeks such as these to be his worshipers. And she says back to him, yeah, I know that when the Messiah comes, she's speaking to the Messiah. She didn't recognize that yet. But she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll explain these things. Or It's a way of saying one of these days we'll understand it, but not now. Jesus said, actually, I am he, the one to whom you are speaking. I'm the Messiah. I'm telling you the truth right now. You don't have to go into the mountain. You don't have to go into the holy city of Jerusalem. You can worship God in spirit, which is everything you have, the essence of who you are. And in truth, and I think, I think Jesus speaking the word truth there to her is so important. See, the Samaritans, they, they, they had a falling out with the Jews. And it's, the blame falls to equal portions to, to the parties. But they had developed customs for worship that they knew were not right. So a lot of their worship was based on partial truth and paganism and empty tradition. And she's just saying, well, I don't even know if we can even understand any of this stuff. What Jesus is saying, listen, you need to stop listening to the opinions of others and do what you know is true. I'm telling you what's true. What does that mean to you and me? It means you you need to stop listening to popular opinions and whatever the sway of they might be in everyday life and start listening to what God has to say. There is a truth book for you to live your life by. And it's right here. And if you're living your life ways that in ways that are not represented in this book, then you're living according to popular opinion and myth. Some of you sitting in this room right now or some listening onto this podcast out on our website, you, you are, you're basing your right now and your eternity on some clever little argument that someone gives about faith and the scriptures and about God. And it's just their opinion. L- let me tell you what else it means. 
it means you're going to have to decide who you're going to live for. Are you, are you going to live to please people or are you going to live to please God? Because you can't do both. I can tell you right now, if you live your life in a way that pleases God, it will not be pleasing to the people around you. They may admire you. But, men, I'm just going to tell you, if, if, the, if the people you work with, let's just say the guys, the men you work with, if they know that you're a believer... They're not going to invite you to the strip club. They just aren't. There's some things you're going to be left out of. I, I learned that the hard way. I mean, I, I thought that the friends that I grew up with, and, and some of them still are my great friends today, but, man, it was amazing how quickly we stopped hanging out together once they found out that I was not going to be in business anymore, that I was going back to college, I was going to school. I didn't get invited to the same parties. I wasn't accepted by everyone. Not because I walked around with a 50-pound horse choker of a Bible, you know, screaming Bible verses at people and preaching, you know, in the car and everyone I talked to. Not because of any of those things. To me, in many ways, I was still the same old Jimmy. But not to them. I had to learn to be okay with that, and so do you. You're going to be left out of some things, and that's okay. You need to stop living by the opinions of others and start living by the truth of God's word. I need to hurry a little bit here. So here's number three. I make spending time with God a priority. I make spending time with God a priority. John 17, 3. Now, this is the eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is John talking. He's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about getting to know you. How do you get to know God? Because clearly that, that's what he wants. That they know you. They is you and me. Us. That they may know you. How do you get to know God? You do not get to know God by reading devotional books, although I read devotional books and there's nothing wrong with those. You're not going to get to know God the way you need to know God just because you go see the latest, greatest Christian movie. And I like Christian movies. I'm going to see The Adams Family tonight. I can't wait. <laughs> so I'll look for some spiritual value in that, but it's not a Christian movie. How do you get to know God? You spend time with him. In the series we just finished up, we, our back, back on track series, we talked about the first 15, the first 15 minutes of every day. You spend that listening to God and talking to God. So I know that most of you have read through Proverbs. Let me give you another scripture challenge. Tomorrow, I want you to start reading the Gospel of Matthew. Read it for the next 28 days. One chapter each day for the next 28 days. I don't want you to start today. I want you to start tomorrow. Here's why I want you to start tomorrow. Because um, after today's service, I have, I have a funeral to do. But tonight, somewhere between the funeral and the Adams family, 
and then maybe even a little time after that, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of you in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to write commentary on it. Just, just notes that will help you read through each chapter. So I'm, I'm not ahead of you yet, but I will be starting tomorrow morning. So if you want the notes that I write, because I, I was telling my Wednesday night Bible study a few weeks ago, I, I'm always making notes of what I'm studying. And instead of me just keeping those in a notebook, if you want them, I'm happy to send them to you. But I'm not just going to send them to everybody because I don't want to just fill up your inbox, your email inbox. So if you want them, you just let me know on the back of your connection card. If you just write Matthew, I'll know what you mean. So I'm giving you that as a next step. Starting tomorrow morning, spend your first 15 minutes with the Lord. And sometime tonight, Diego doesn't know it yet, but sometime late tonight or in the wee early morning hours tomorrow, he's going to send out to everyone who fills out a connection card saying, I want Matthew. You're going to get just my notes on how to read through each of those chapters. Want to get to know Jesus? You can get to know Jesus over the next 28 days like you've never known him before. But you will not know him if you don't spend time with him. Think about, think about in your marriage. Listen, some of us, some of us, listen right now, we're struggling with marriages that are falling apart. You know why? It's because you don't spend meaningful, significant time with each other. I'm not saying you're not together all the time. But you're not spending quality time together with each other. And the same is true with some of us in our relationship with God. We, we claim that we love God with everything we have, yet we don't spend quality time with him. This is a challenge to spend more time with him. Number four, I trust God by taking bold steps of faith. I trust God by taking bold steps of faith. Man, I'm just looking at the clock on the wall. It's getting late. Some of you are like, yeah, we know. We stopped listening to you 15 minutes ago. In Mark 8, 35, thank you. Thank you, sister. You love Jesus, and I appreciate it. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Here's the bottom line. Some of you listening right now, you just plan your life too safe. You're, the prayers you're praying over your kids are too safe. I pray every day that my kids will be safe. But years ago, I learned how to stop praying that they would live safe lives. I don't want them to live safe lives. I don't want them to live recklessly. Annie, make sure you tell James in case he doesn't come to church today. He's working today. But I want them to live all in with the Lord. I, I, I don't want them to be afraid to make bold steps of faith. Man, 20 years ago when we started Rocky River Church, there were about a dozen of us, no money, no bank accounts, nowhere to meet. 
nothing but really a, a vision to start a church for people, people who have never been to church or people who have given up on church as usual. And you know, it was easier to take bold steps of faith then than it is now. Do you know why? Even, even when we had a grand opening 20 years ago, we just didn't have much. Everything that we had for a couple of years would fit in the back of a Toyota Camry. I'm talking about including the keyboard. That changed when we bought a case for the keyboard. The keyboard would no longer fit in the back seat of the car. Our, um, our hospitality area was a metal chair and a box of donuts and a gallon of orange juice. Some Sundays, if we just had crazy money, we would put a gallon of milk there with it and let everybody have their own cup. You didn't have to recycle. It was easier to be all in back then because we didn't have very much. We could take big, bold steps back then because we were only throwing a few hundred dollars out there and saying, Lord, here it is. You do with it whatever you want to. It's a whole, it got harder to say, Lord, we're all in because later you have full-time staff and Staff's having babies, and people need insurance, and now you own property, and then you build a building, and now you have, like, grown-up mortgage payments and stuff like that. The further you get into things, the harder it is to be bold. That's why for the last few weeks and even months, I've been challenging our lead team and our staff team to start thinking big, start thinking bold. Because when you think small... You start to die in your faith. You, you know why? Because when you're thinking small and you're attempting small, that means that you're trying to do what you can accomplish or what you and a few people around you can accomplish. And you're not depending on God. And some of the greatest days of my life and ministry were depending on God to do what only God could do. When we were building this building, we... This retention pond we have out back here, the, the, the builder hit rock. Not the kind we'd been hitting, the white kind. That pops up easily. They hit the blue kind, granite. There was no rock contract in our, or no rock clause in our contract. And... Along the way, and we were getting pretty close to getting things wrapped up here. Along the way, the city and the state made us do this, do that. They sucked up all of our extra money, money we were going to spend on sound and lighting and stuff like that, which we've never fully recovered from, to be honest with you. But the contractor called me one day, and he said, listen, they've hit rock. We've already talked to the, the grading contractor and it's going to cost $50,000. Fifty. It may as well have been $5 million because we didn't have it. I mean, we did not have it. There was no way to get it. We couldn't go to the bank. 
I'd had to come back to the congregation a couple times and say, listen, the city's making us put in a $20,000 this or a $15,000 that or a $40,000 the other thing. And so we had, we had already put in all we could do. That was sometime before lunch when the contractor called. And then later in the afternoon, we set up a meeting. They were going to come and meet with us once they got off work at 5 o'clock. And we'd sit down and just talk through it and see what we needed to do. So what we were thinking is, okay, we're going to have to leave the classrooms unfinished. And we're not going to be able to do this and do that. And the only thing I, I could do is pray. We were literally in a place where there was, there was no one to call. And so we just prayed. That afternoon, the contractor came in and sat down with us. Shote was our, our, uh, our general contractor then. And he sat down. We walked through all the paperwork. They showed what everything was going to cost. It was a little over $50,000. And then, and then the project manager said, I got to tell you something that happened today that's never happened before. I've never seen this, never heard of this happening before. The grading contractor called, and they're going to pay the $50,000. They're going to pay it. And he said, I, I, I don't even know how to tell my bosses at work. The first thought that went through my mind is, so why do we spend, sit here for 45 grueling minutes going through <laughs> what this is going to cost? I've been dying all day, and now you just pushed me over the edge here with all of this. But, but then I thought, only God could do this. But let me, let me tell you something. As long as you are doing things in your life that you can accomplish without God, he won't show up. You don't need him. If you want to see him work, you do something that's bigger than you, something you have to depend on him for, and you'll see him show up. Then there's this last thing. I live for God with great passion. Just out beside that, write down the word zeal. In John 2, Jesus goes into the temple. I've, I've already told you guys that he's having all sorts of problems with these religious leaders. Well, in John's gospel, what pushes the religious leaders over the line is when Jesus comes into the temple during Passover, and they have this great tourist business going on in there. They have a gift shop, and the money that they're really making is through the selling of the stuff. Jesus walks in and goes Indiana Jones on them, has a rope or a, a, a whip, kicking over tables telling them to get out. They've made a den of thieves out of his father's house. And I've thought before, what were the disciples thinking? Were they going, oh my gosh. Where is meek and mild? Who is this? What's going on here? Jesus said, you've, you've turned my father's house in, into a place where thieves hang out. He was calling them a bunch of thieves. And 
what you see happening in that story is you see the passion that Jesus has for God and the house of God and the things of God. And let me, let me tell you, Jesus knew that from that point on, there's no turning back. Not with the religious crowd. They're, they're done with him. And John says later, just, just after the story, that that's when the religious leaders and the political leaders, so now the Jews and the Romans are together, and they're looking for a way to destroy Jesus. And Jesus knew that was coming. Jesus was crossing a line here. A line where he says, I'm going to live for God. I'm doing his thing, not my plan. It's his plan. I'm all in. There is no turning back. And, and listen, some of you need to make that decision today. You've been following Jesus, but you've been following him at a distance, a safe distance. You've, you've been hanging back so that people can't quite say, mm. This guy's all in. They know you go to church. They know you have decent morals. But they have no idea what kind of passion and zeal for you, that you have for the Lord because you don't live that out. You say you believe in God, but in reality, you live like a practical atheist. You say you believe in God, you just don't live like it. For some of you, today is the day to cross over that line and say, Jesus, I'm all in. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to close the service today in prayer. I want you to just stand with me. And once you're standing, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Bob, if Jenny could come up and play, that would be great. But if you'd let David and those guys know, I'm going to close the service in prayer. So just with her David, I see you coming in. Listen, I'm, I want to end the service just with, just with uh, this prayer. You guys can still come up. You can play us out. But I want to end the service today with prayer. Um, bow your head and close your eyes. And I, I, want you, I want you to do some business with God. I want you to make up your mind right now. Starting today, you're going to begin living a lifestyle of worship. Where you don't just say, okay, Lord, I'll give you Sundays, but every other day is mine. I'll give you a few hours on Sunday. I'll give you 15 minutes each morning. But then what I do with the rest of my life, that, that's up to me. I want you to decide today you're not going to live that way anymore. I want you to decide that you're going to live every day doing your very best through the power and strength of God to worship Him as a lifestyle, to love Him with your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, everything that you have. And I want to say this prayer for those of us who are making that commitment today. Lord, we pray right now that you would give us the strength and courage to live each day going forward for you. 
Lord, this means that some in this room are trusting you as Lord and Savior for the very first time. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the courage that it will take to live for Jesus at Bank of America, UNC Chapel Hill, UNC Charlotte, Pembroke, Western Carolina, University at Wilmington. The race team I work for, the kids I'm raising at home, the kids I'm teaching in school, the fire department, the police department. Lord, wherever I work, wherever I go, I want to live all in. I want to live like I love you. And I want to love you in everything that I do. Jesus, we pray in your great name. Those who agreed said, amen. So you're taking some next steps today? Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, starting tomorrow. And if you want those notes... You just turn in your connection card. We have ushers that are moving to the exits now. They have the receiving baskets. Drop that connection card in there and let's read Matthew together. God bless you guys.